You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team Ready. Ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is, so they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash team ready. What is going on, Belly Up Sports fam? Shaka Cummings, Parker Ainsworth, welcome to F in Sports, the podcast with two teachers, grade sports, biggest issues. And in a world where there is a lot of issues, thank goodness you have the distraction <laughs> where a couple of teachers will talk a little bit of sports. How are you doing today, Parker? I'm doing. I guess I'm, which is better than not doing. I'm doing. Um, how are you doing, Mr. Cummings? Yeah, uh, like we said before the podcast, it's like I'm living and it's better than the alternative, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, the world is a little crazy around us uh, with everything that's in the news, whether it's COVID or uh george floyd and so hopefully this podcast can be a little bit of a distraction but i know that with our goal starts and detentions we're definitely going to address some of the things that are going on around the world so uh parker do you want to hit us with your gold stars yeah i have several gold stars and i think it's important you know as two history teachers we sit here and like there's a lot of history happening and it's important to look at and give gold stars to people involved in that and sticking with sports, it, it felt fairly easy to give out gold stars this week because there were several people being very active. My my first gold star goes to the combination of folks, Josh Okoge, J.R. Smith, um, Carl Anthony Towns, who I want to give an extra shout out to in a second, and Stephen Jackson, who gets the biggest shout out, I think, of any athlete of the week um, for their work in Minnesota. These are very high profile people that did not necessarily like have to leave comforts of their homes amidst a pandemic. Uh, it's worth pointing out that Carl Anthony Towns just lost his mother uh, to COVID not that long ago. And uh, Steven Jackson had to go all the way from Houston to Minneapolis. He had to travel literally across the country to do this, but they're up there um, protesting. Obviously with very uh, serious connections between Carl Anthony Towns currently living in Minnesota as a Timberwolf and then Steven Jackson uh, growing up with George Floyd for a long time. I'm not saying that there's no reason to be there, but they're obviously doing much more than they necessarily had to and kind of at the front of these uh, protests and rallies happening in Minneapolis in a very positive way. And it's always good to see athletes doing that um, because you hope that your athletes are the role models for these kids you teach every day, right? And so it's good to see those positive figures out there to be highlighted. Absolutely. And um, I actually saw that uh, Dennis Smith Jr. was actually at a rally in uh, Fayette, North Carolina with J. Cole, and they were like leading folks in peaceful protest. And it's like, absolutely, there's so many folks that young people look up to, and to see them 
using their platforms to really speak on issues that are very much pertinent to them. Definitely something powerful. My gold star goes to the UFC. We had an event yesterday. It was on ESPN. A uh, former champion got his bell rung uh, and got knocked out. But even with the event, uh, the UFC actually did a dedication to George Floyd. They dedicated the event last night on ESPN to George Floyd, which is interesting because so many times we look at situations like this and we look at the uh, the politicization of it. It's a, it, it becomes a politics scenario. And if you know anything about Dana White, you wouldn't think that his politics would necessarily <laughs> coincide with a lot of the people who are protesting. That being said, this transcended anyone's kind of political forethought and folks came together and decided that it was appropriate to dedicate last night's event to George Floyd. And so I thought that that was a pretty powerful uh, symbolic gesture by the UFC. If I'm looking for detention this week, if, if we're going to kind of go back to sports as escapism, I've got to go to Kendrick Perkins earlier this week. <laughs> who Kendrick Perkins decided in the midst of, because we, we needed more to fight about apparently, according to Kendrick Perkins, he decided to start the Steph versus James Harden debate on Twitter and compare, you know, just asked a question and just the Steph Curry versus James Harden very plainly without any context, any, you know, what are we comparing here? What are we looking at? So on very openly and honestly. And um, I got to say, you know, as someone who's fairly involved in Rockets Twitter, I, I, not, <laughs> not like, I, I, I follow it closely anyway. Um, man, it was just another area to see a lot of bickering and fighting. And I did not need to, that was not the sports escapism I was looking for. Kendrick Perkins. So you get a detention. We needed, we needed more fun topics this week than fighting about stepping hard and, We'll do that for the entirety of their legacies. We don't need to do that this week. <laughs> uh, my detention is going to go to Joe Lockhart. Joe Lockhart, <laughs> for those of you guys who don't know, is the former vice president of communications for the NFL. And his career has spanned well beyond the NFL because he worked under Bill Clinton and his administration once upon a time. Um, Lockhart came out and wrote an editorial for CNN saying that the NFL, someone should have signed Colin Kaepernick. And whether you believe Colin Kaepernick should be signed, whether you agree with Colin Kaepernick's protests, whether, whether, whatever you feel about Kaepernick, the NFL, and the global situation that we're looking at in terms of race relations within the United States, for Joe Lockhart to come out now and say that someone should have signed Kaepernick, like, just shut up. You had your opportunity <laughs> when you were working in the front office in the NFL to actually impact change in that particular uh, with that particular issue and chose to do whatever it was you did. Ka Kaepernick never got signed. So I don't know what pull you had at that time. You definitely don't have any now. And to come out now with fanned flames the way that they are around race relations and say, hey, the NFL was wrong. They should have signed Kaepernick. It's like, you know what? You you shut up, you be quiet, you're not helping any situation. And the reality was when you have the opportunity to actually do something with a position of power, it looks like you did nothing. So I don't need to hear your opinion now. Thank you, sir. You may move on. Um, hey, Shaka, Shaka, what's the Nas lyric? It, it, there's the Nas lyric there that does something about <laughs> the NFL strikes me as very much following right now. Uh, absolutely. So there's a lyric, uh, Nas years back did a a song and there's a lyric in there where he says this year is trendy to be a conscious MC, but next year who knows what we'll see and uh that's how the nfl kind of feels like now they want to kind of be uh conscious and they they want to be woke and it's like sorry you slept too long it's, uh, it's too late for you to be woke slept, now slept too long it's like it's just marketable right now they think it's cool because they see nike doing it and they're like oh yeah well we can make money on this there's they had their chance man absolutely and uh you could have had the same forethought to make the money that nike's making because all that nike did was sign colin kaepernick <laughs> all they did was the thing you didn't do um this <laughs> with this week's pod we're going to be talking about quarterbacks actually in the nfl and uh we're going to be talking about their paychecks in particular we're going to talk about the nba and the plans that they have for reopening and then we're going to talk about documentaries and what is the next sports story that deserves the last dance treatment uh so without further ado mr aysworth are you ready sir ready when you are shaga Okay, Mr. Ainsworth, our first thesis statement for the week. It's simple. The NFL overpays quarterbacks. This thesis statement comes from 
the uh, tail end of some of our conversations last week where you were talking about uh, Mina Kimes and her perspective on this and maybe her almost shifting your perspective. So I am curious, how are you going to grade the thesis statement, the NFL overpays quarterbacks? I have like my within the realm of current NFL view on it and like a bigger view on it that are kind of opposite one. So I'm going to say C because it's kind of in the middle of two very opposite views. Part of me wants to get an A and part of me wants to get an F. I think we settled there a lot, but that's, I'm thinking C, what do you grade it as, Mr. Cummings? Okay, I am going with an F. I don't think that the NFL overpays the quarterbacks at all. So I'm going to go with an F, and maybe we'll have some lively discussion once we actually start talking <laughs> through the topic. Okay, Mr. Cummings, you straight up flunked the thesis. Well, there are aspects of it that I wanted to flunk myself. I passed it. It's still eligible and playing for me if it were in my classroom um i need to ask what made you flunk that thesis what makes you think that quarterbacks are not overpaid every time that you equate (laughs) the thesis to eligibility i'm like oh gosh i gotta pass somebody we literally have no quarterback now um good luck good good luck with the season um no i failed it because I just don't think that NFL quarterbacks are overpaid. I think that there are several pieces that go into my thoughts. The first is, what's the metric for overpaying? Like, if there's a market for your services and someone's willing to pay within that market, we don't look at any other realm and say that people are just overpaid. We just understand that that's the market. Now, maybe from a judgmental standpoint, we might say that a CEO is overpaid or something to that effect, but there's just an understanding that CEOs get paid more than other folks, right? If you go into entertainment fields, the highest end entertainers just get paid more. And with quarterbacks, that's the nature of the NFL. The highest paid position in the NFL is the quarterback position. You have these other positions that are important, but you you have the quarterback. They're paid. This is the market. The market isn't set by the quarterbacks. The market is set by the, the demand. And so the quarterbacks don't control that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, what is it that we're judging based on that idea of overpayment? Are we saying that you have to win a Super Bowl? Are we saying that you have to make your team competitive? Are you saying that you have to have great individuals? Like, I don't know what the what the target is in terms of how we should pay quarterbacks other than the market essentially setting itself. If you feel like you got a guy who you can win with, so then you go ahead and pay him. Um, so if you have guys who don't win a Super Bowl but are still in the top 10 in terms of being paid, which obviously you have, then that's fine. That's what the market is. If you have guys that aren't in the top 10, which obviously you have because we had Patrick Mahomes winning a Super Bowl last year on his rookie deal, then that's fine too because eventually that market's going to correct itself and that rookie is going to get paid more. When I think about the actual uh, payment for NFL players, like you start looking at the highest paid players by position, you start looking at guys like Jimmy Graham was the highest paid tight end last year and Ezekiel Elliott was the highest paid running back and Julio Jones was the highest paid wide receiver. The highest paid quarterback was Russell Wilson. So, like, if we start looking at who's impacting winning, okay, Russell Wilson of those guys is definitely the one who's impacting winning. And then you start going into uh, the defensive side, it's the same thing. Like, it's it's so hit or miss whether or not that payer that you're paying that high salary to is going to impact your uh, bottom line in terms of wins and losses, unless it's the quarterback. It feels like the quarterback has the most uh, granular impact because – they touch the ball on every play. And if you got a good quarterback, you got a shot. If you're a team that has no quarterback, you really don't have a shot. Historically, I can think of two teams in my lifetime that won with like subpar quarterback play. And that's because their defenses were otherworldly. Even the 85 Bears, like people want to talk about them as being an otherworldly defense, which of course they are. They had decent quarterback play from Jim McMahon. Uh, only really the Tampa Bay Buccaneers otherworldly defense in terms of the Tampa two and the Baltimore Ravens. They actually beat my giants in that Super Bowl, which was really disheartening, but the (laughs) the Ray Lewis Ed Reed, Baltimore defense, like those teams won with subpar quarterback play and really won on the backs of their defense. Otherwise you got to have a cue. If you don't have a cue, it's going to be very difficult for you to win. And there's this sentiment that's been 
kind of going through the league lately because they're talking about Dak Prescott and his contract, and they talk about like Dak maybe needing to take less so the Dallas can pay other players because that's what Tom Brady's done, right? Tom Brady took less in order to make sure that other players could be signed. And it's like, I hate that sentiment. The market dictates what you're worth. If the market says I'm worth this, then I'm going to go get that money. And your job as the general manager, the person who's in charge of player personnel, is your job to make sure that you got good players around me so that we can be successful. It's not my job to take less so that you can figure out how to spend that money. I could take less and you can spend that money poorly anyway. So I'm going to take my money and then you do your job. Because trust me, if I take my money, I'm going to worry about doing my job. And if I don't do my job, you'll cut me, right? Because that's the nature of the NFL as well. You touched on several. So again, I, I gave it a C as I saw there were some F things about it and some A things about it. And so I guess I'll start with a couple of things you said that I, I think are fair. You got to realize part of what I think about when I think about flunking the thesis, because I said F and A, uh, my F reasons are I would be more open to an NFL without a salary cap and without these free agency restrictions. Without, like, let the guys have the open market to go make their money. There are very literal billionaires running the companies that these guys work for, if you want to look at it like a market, right? They can. Go, there's no reason that there is a salary cap. The salary cap is there for the owners to sit there and say, this helps us play evenly, right? To make sure Jerry doesn't just throw... $10 million to his fourth string, you know, kickoff returner. You take that away, I, I'm open to doing all kinds of things there, right? So I would be open to talking about a world without a salary cap. The other thing I'll say is the other thought thing I had about flunking it is the truth is everyone's goal is to be overpaid. I would love to walk into <laughs> a world one day where someone says, hey, that Ainsworth guy is making way too much money. And I'd be like, dang right I am like there's no <laughs> there's no I want that job one day I want to be overpaid so I hate to, the I like putting a negative stigma on that period every athlete because your body is your resource and it does run out every athlete should sign the biggest deal in front of them I'm not saying that they should be putting you know oh well I'm gonna sign the smaller deal here even if that's what Brady did for his you know majority of his career now the reason I had part of me that wanted to give it an A, though, and what pulled the grade up to a C in my head is that I do understand the idea of, in building a roster, putting too much of the allocated money into one position like quarterback, um, even as important as a quarterback is to a football team. We both coach football. We both know having a good quarterback can cover up so many mistakes or so many errors, right? So many flaws putting all that money into that spot has tended in the most recent couple of CBAs, if you look at this, who's going to the Super Bowl, and typically lessening your chance of making a Super Bowl. Um, it's funny, you brought this whole thing up because last week, I believe, it might have been the week before, but I think it was last week, I talked about how I listened to a podcast between, uh, it was Mina Kimes and Bill Barnwell, and they were talking, and they actually almost shifted my opinion on that a little bit because if you think about like who won the Super Bowl the last 15 years, very often it's a team with a quarterback on a rookie deal or a cheap deal or, or things like that, right? Uh, you know, Joe Flacco, right before he signs the big deal, the Ravens are a whole different looking team than right after he signs the big deal. Seattle was really good when they had Russell Wilson on a cheap rookie deal or an early, early career deal, and they could still pay for the Legion of Boom on defense and still pay for that, you know, front seven and still pay for his offensive line and so on like that. The New England Patriots dynasty is built in a lot of ways and the fact that Tom Brady doesn't care how much money, didn't care, seem to care how much money he made because he was always going to be making less money than his wife, right? Like, so he could do all those kinds of things. Philadelphia had a rookie quarterback and a backup quarterback, and they, you know, we all remember the Nick Foles Eagles. Um, Kansas City just did it with Patrick Mahomes, and he's on his rookie deal. But what I'm getting at is, it's, I do understand the idea that that lessens your chance to win a Super Bowl if you look back at the last 15 to 20, depending how far you want to go back, Super Bowl winners, right? Um, it's typically not the teams that are investing the majority of their cap into having the highest paid quarterback at that moment. It seems like every year we have a new quarterback step up and take the highest paid guy. And you're right that that's supposed to be Dak Prescott this offseason. And it looks like he's, you know, aiming to be the current highest paid quarterback because in about two years, it'll be no longer him and it'll be the next guy up or whatever, right? You know, call me old fashioned. I do think that part of being a GM is building a team that has a chance of really winning, even if you're being cynical and saying it's really to build a team that brings in dollars because winning brings in dollars. Um, 
And so I guess that's why I settled at a C though, Shaka's, because you're right, there are aspects of it that seem silly. Like why would we ever tell a person to make less money than the market will allow them? That's dumb. But I also see why if you're the team constructing a deal, you don't want to put all that money out there. So two things, and these two things both really get at this point that you can't allocate too much money to the quarterback position and still win a Super Bowl. In my mind, that is, it's a fallacy of logical reasoning. And what people look to is they look to like the highest paid guys. And they'll say, oh, when Matthew Stafford was the highest paid, he didn't win the Super Bowl. Or when Joe Flacco was the highest paid, he didn't win the Super Bowl. And the first thing that you have to understand is if we start looking at teams that have won Super Bowls, like Tom Brady's a top 10 highest paid quarterback in the NFL when he's winning his Super Bowls, as is Drew Brees, as is Aaron Rodgers, as is Ben Roethlisberger, as is Peyton Manning. Just because they weren't the highest paid dude, and just because we look at the highest paid dude and say that dude shouldn't make more money than Peyton or Tom or Drew, that doesn't mean that that team lost because they allocated too much money to the quarterback. The reality is, look at the makeup of the rest of the roster. Like Detroit wasn't making the playoffs with Matthew Stafford as the highest paid guy. So to me, that's a GM issue. And so now if what we're going to say is, oh, we're going to allocate less money to Matthew Stafford and trust that GM to actually draft and sign guys around him to make the team better because Matthew Stafford isn't making the most money. What has that dude done to prove that that he's actually going to be able to build that winner. So that's the first thing that I ask. The second thing that I want to throw at you is um, I'm looking at sportstrack.com and I'm actually looking at the top 10 teams in terms of salary cap or it's not even salary cap. It's just salary, what they paid out to their players because we know that there are rules that allow you to go over the cap and those sorts of things. Right. right, right. So based on, the top 10 teams, and who's paying the most money out to their top 51 players, so to their really game-to-game roster. The highest-paid roster was the Kansas City Chiefs. They won the Super Bowl. That's awesome. Number two is the Indianapolis Colts. Number three, the Dallas Cowboys. Number four, the Raiders. Number five, the Rams. Number six, the Bears. Number seven, the Patriots. Number eight, the Panthers. Number nine, the Bills. Number 10, the Falcons. Only three of those teams even made the playoffs, let alone competed for a Super Bowl. And so it gets back to this point that just because you're not allocating a ton of money to the quarterback, that doesn't mean that you have any better chance of winning. The Colts weren't paying Jacoby Brissett a ton. Dallas definitely wasn't paying Dak. That's why Dak's trying to get his money now. The Raiders with David Carr. Right. So like we can look at we can point to the Rams or we can point to the Falcons and we can point to even the Carolina Panthers if you want to do that with Cam Newton's injury. And we could we could prove our point there. But then what about these other teams? Like what about the Chicago Bears? What about the Buffalo Bills? These guys have quarterbacks that are on rookie deals. Right. And so shouldn't they and Buffalo's actually doing well. Right, because they made the playoffs, but shouldn't these teams just be competing for Super Bowls the same way that Kansas City did with Mahomes on his rookie deal, the same way that Seattle did with Russell Wilson on their rookie deal? Like, we forget that these quarterbacks are just great. Like, Russell Wilson and uh, Patrick Mahomes are just great quarterbacks, and they were great early. And that's really the deal. It has nothing to do with what they were being paid or the pay allocation. They just were great. And then they had other great players around them. Right. And I think that that's a multifaceted thing that you're you're kind of gloss you're assuming that like if you had if you're paying the quarterback too much or if you're paying the quarterback a larger chunk of the you know of the piece of the pie for like a better phrase if you're paying the quarterback too big a piece of the pie there that you in turn are going to like also have a good gm like you're also assuming that the gm is going to be good in that situation i think and i i you keep alluding to the idea that the gm could go out and spend the rest of that money or the rest of that pie from that metaphor poorly. I think that that's a sunk assumption or a sunk cost of a lot of way, in a lot of ways because the truth is bad GMs are not going to build these good winning teams anyway. And so if you want to sit here and talk about how few GMs in the NFL are doing things correctly, I think that's a different thesis and a different pod because I would agree that there are a lot of a lot more bad NFL GMs than good ones for lots of reasons, not just how they pay and who they pay. 
Um, but assuming those things are equal, assuming the rest of the roster is being you know put together fairly well, I think that it's in, it's worth pointing out that a yes you do need a generational quarterback to win in the NFL. I'm not saying you don't. You point out Russell Wilson and you pointed out Patrick Mahomes. I think that you need there need like the lightning in a bottle just had the right year kind of thing like you did with Nick Foles and Carson Wentz the year in Philadelphia, or you need those generational talents, right? I think that's more than fair. I think having those generational talents and also being able to supply the rest of the roster around them is a very clear-cut way to do a lot of winning in a short period of time. You saw Seattle go all-in on maximizing that roster around Russell Wilson. You were seeing, you saw uh, Kansas City go all-in and building their roster around Patrick Mahomes. And now they're sitting here debating whether or not they can even hold on to a pass rusher in this current offseason after having just won the Super Bowl, right? He was a cornerstone of the defense that helped them win a Super Bowl. And they're like, can we hold on to him? Because in 18 months, we're going to have to pay Pat Mahomes, right? Um, obviously, you need a generational quarterback. That helps a lot. But can you really afford to pay him a huge piece of your salary cap to do that? It, that seems to be less and less likely because teams are finding ways around it. Does that mean that the Bears are doing it poorly? Or does that necessarily mean that the Bears are not doing it poorly, I guess? No, it's, the Bears could also be a poorly put together team. Both of those theories can be true and right. Like the Bears can be poorly run, but they could also have set up a system that doesn't like where they're trying to find a way to use a rookie or, you know, rookie contract quarterback to build a team. Like they also just two years ago were, you know, double dunk, dink, dunk, whatever you want to call it game from the field goal. Like they were also not that far away, not that long ago. Right. Um, I, I just, I think that it's easy to like assume that the bad franchises need to overpay their quarterback because they're going to be bad otherwise. But the truth is the bad franchise just run by people are going to run a bad organization. Yeah, but then why am I giving the bad franchises more money to run a bad organization by not paying my quarterback? Like if my quarterback can play, pay the dude, right? If he can't play, then don't pay him and go find another guy. But I guess here's what I'm not willing to do. I'm not willing to make the assumption that you uh, alluded to prior to your previous point, which is if all things are the same, (laughs) right that the GM is hopefully going to do the things that are reasonable to make his team a winner and the quarterback is going to be successful if you are if you have a good one it's like what we see is that there's not even enough starting quarterbacks on this planet to supply every team in the NFL there just aren't because there's plenty there might not be there might not be enough to do half I think there are a lot of quarterbacks just have a job so then you better pay the dudes who can right I mean that's ultimate supply and demand you better right, pay the but, dudes who can actually do the job. Then yeah. what you need is your general manager to go do their job, which is now build a winner around that guy. You know what? If it takes $40 million to pay Patrick Mahomes, then you better pay Patrick Mahomes $40 million because we know that he disproportionately impacts winning. So now you better draft and sign guys and find the diamonds in the rough because Tyreek Hill wasn't a first-round draft pick. Find the diamonds in the rough. Like That becomes your job. And when we look at a team like the Patriots that did a lot of winning, Tom Brady's still a top five paid quarterback in the NFL. But for the majority of his career, Bill Belichick was able to find the guys around him. It's only lately where he hasn't drafted well that now we begin to kind of question Bill Belichick and his abilities as a GM. Like, your job as a GM is to go find great players. My job as a quarterback is to play my butt off. Now, when I play my butt off, pay me. (laughs) Like, there's no two ways about it. Okay, Mr. Ainsworth, now we get to our second thesis statement of the podcast. And of course, we got to hit on the NBA because people are talking about coming back and playing. The thesis statement, should the NBA come back in an abbreviated form, the NBA title for the year 2020 deserves an asterisk. So I say that to you, Mr. Ainsworth. How would you grade that thesis statement? I flunk that thesis statement. I give him that one an F. What do you grade as Mr. Cummings? Uh, I'm probably going to give that a B. So, <laughs> so okay, my, my, my guy's eligible. I got a shooting guard that can get out there and play. You have no team. <laughs> Mr. Ainsworth, I know from all of our Houston Astros conversations that you hate asterisk anyway. That being said, should the NBA come back in an abbreviated form the NBA championship in 2020 deserves an asterisk. 
you flunk that. You don't flunk a lot of stuff. So talk to me about <laughs> why you're failing that thesis statement. Well, I've got, I've got mul multiple reasons why, but I want to start with the idea of what an asterisk is, right? An asterisk is there to go in like the, the record book or wherever you're keeping track of whoever wins the, the title, assuming they come back and play, whoever wins the title. And you're like marking it as like making sure people knew it was different. I've got a really big newsflash to everyone that does not understand this yet. No one is forgetting that 2020 <laughs> was different any time soon. The second thing is, is that if you look at, I compared this season, they've all, uh, you know, we're just looking it up a second ago off pod. Everyone is over, it looks like, 62 games. Some are 63, 64, right? But everyone, because it stopped at such a random point. But everyone's over 62 games, right? As I look at that, if you're over 62 games, you're really, you've played almost as many games in the entire regular season as they did in the 2011 lockout. And you've played significantly more games than they played in the 99 lockout. Um, and so to me, the idea that that regular season somehow got shortened or like that the, you know, the teams weren't ready for the playoffs or whatever, like it's actually longer, you know, than it needed to be if you're trying to like think about too short of a season. While you could argue like spots within two through seven, um, are only separated by, you know, a total of five or so games in the West and that there might be some jockeying for position at that eighth seed or, or whatever. A lot of the teams that are in the playoffs are fairly locked up. Like the gap between sixth seed and seventh seed in the East is uh, eight games and the gap between uh, seven and eight in the West is seven games and there were less than 20 to go. I, I, like that, that's a pretty noticeable gap like teams have separated themselves into playoffs or not playoffs for the most part and i'm a rockets guy they're sitting here at the six seed but i don't think that that asterisk is needed because the truth is is that at this point once you get to the playoffs you gotta beat the teams anyway i understand it's a matchup league i understand that that throws a lot of things as far as what rounds you see teams right um you're talking to, again to a rockets guy if they had not run into the Warriors in 2018, they'd run into someone else, they're the champs, right? Like I, I get I get how things shake out like that. Um, but what I'm also pointing out is that as a Rockets guy, you had to beat the Warriors that year, right? This year in the playoffs, in the West, you've got to beat LA and LA. In the East, you're gonna have to beat Milwaukee. I don't really care what your seed is and when you have to play them, you got to beat Milwaukee. And so I, I think that at some level, that just needs to be understood as far as like it's a weird and different year and so yes your seating might not have been what you wanted it to be with the last 15 or 16 games of the season but that's just kind of tough you're going to have to beat the teams anyway just you might play them earlier or later than you wanted to and that that's the way that shakes out the other thing i'll say is is that you could the asterisk is going to imply if you put it on this season you know oh it's not really a championship it's not really this or it's not really that and I would sit here and argue, till I'm blue in the face, I believe, that it will actually be more difficult to win this championship. Um, the idea of staying in shape without being able to leave home for a lot of NBA players the last three months is insane. I cannot stress that enough. Like the idea that these guys are somehow going to come back and play in shape and get their bodies ready to go, like that's going to create a really, really difficult title to win. Um, I think that the asterisk implies that it's not a real championship when the truth is it might be a very difficult to win championship if they come back and play. Yeah, I gave the thesis statement a B. And the great thing about your conversation there, Mr. Ainsworth, is that it feeds into a lot of the points that I wanted to make in terms of why I'm giving it a B. So we uh, we disagree on a lot of things pretty, pretty straightforward. <laughs> um, so let's let's start with this idea that everyone's going to remember 2020. And so why do you need to put an asterisk? And this gets back to the conversation that we've had multiple times about the Houston Astros. We're not doing the asterisk for kids in 2021. <laughs> like they're going to know kids in 2030. You're going to know at some level, people are going to move far enough past the pandemic that they're not going to realize everything that happened in 2020 which is why you put the asterisk so that people ask the question. I, I would love to challenge folks to ask them if they know what years we dealt with the Spanish flu pandemic. And I would love to ask them if they know who were the champions during that time. I'm willing to bet that because you and I are history teachers and this is topical to us right now, 
we have an idea of when those years were. I don't think the average person does. I don't think the average sports fan does, which is why the asterisk becomes important because the season is not the same. Another point that you mentioned, the fact that folks have played 62 games and you kind of already know what your team is at this point. That's true if what they're going to say is, okay, you can only come back <laughs> in July with your NBA team the way that it was when we left off. Like, you got to come back with your roster just the exact same way. You can't add anybody. You can't get rid of anybody. Like, you guys got to bring everyone back. And we've already heard the talk from the Brooklyn Nets about whether or not Durant and Kyrie Irving are going to be available to them. We've already heard the talk from Portland about Yusuf Nurkic and whether or not he's going to be available to them. Like those guys would not have been able to come back and impact the season enough for those teams that were at the bottom of the playoffs. And those are definitely not championship teams without those players. But now all of a sudden, you got guys who might be healthy and all of a sudden make teams that weren't championship contenders into championship contenders. To me, that's the ultimate reason to put an asterisk on it. Milwaukee showed you what they were. Brooklyn showed you what they were without Kyrie and Durant. Is it going to be different now that those guys come back? Of course it's going to be different. Portland showed you what they were. They weren't a playoff team without Nurkic. But all of a sudden, if he comes back, that changes the dynamic in the West. And so with the league talking about doing some sort of play-in for the teams that are at the bottom to figure out who's going to make it, like this is what the league is saying they want to do. So now you're taking this non-traditional situation and you're applying to it another non-traditional situation where you got just the teams at the bottom who are trying to play in to get those final playoff spots. And listen, the NBA, I get it. You got Zion Williamson out of the playoffs right now. And as much Zion as you can possibly get, you feel like that's probably a good thing for the league, especially considering that he had his injury and we didn't get as much Zion as we were anticipating anyway. So I get that you want to do as much as you can. If a guy like John Wall is able to come back, you want him to be on the court, right, for Washington at the end. I get that, that those guys have appeal and draw. You are tremendously impacting what this season is supposed to look like at that point. Because the Washington Wizards with Bradley Beal and John Wall in the backcourt aren't the same team that played those first 62-ish games. And so, yes, definitive asterisk if you do that. The final point that I want to uh, make, I don't know that anyone putting an asterisk on this season impacts how anyone necessarily thinks about the championship per se. Now, maybe it does. But I don't think that this is the same situation that we were talking about with the Houston Astros. That asterisk was because we felt like that wasn't a fair situation. And so that's the question that we want people to have the discussion about. With this NBA season, what we're saying is there's a lot of non-traditional that was put in here. And because of the non-traditional that was put in, yeah, it's okay for folks to ask the questions about the 2020 season. And I don't know that anyone's going to look at it any differently than they look at a strike shortened season or a lockout shortened season where you didn't have as many games, but we still had a champion. Like no one goes back to the Spurs first championship and say they didn't really earn it. And even if they do, no one cares. Like people look at Tim Duncan and David Robinson and Sean Elliott and Avery Johnson. They're like, no, that was a championship team. Like LeBron is not going to say, oh, I'm not counting that ring or let someone win their first ring. No one's going to say, you think that Giannis is going to be like, oh, I got this championship and it's not the same. Please, that's his first title. Of course he's going to look at it as being major. So I think that's the point you kind of second to last point you landed on there is actually exactly why I don't think it's right to give it an asterisk is because we don't look at the 99, 50-game regular season and say here and asterisk the Spurs. We don't think of that as like, oh, well, the dynasty didn't really start to 2003 because they won on a 50-game season and got to play an eight seed. And the truth is, that the, the Lakers were the team that came after Mike's Bulls. Like no one no one doesn't think about that Spurs title as official or count or anything, and there's no asterisk to it. But they played less games in a weirder situation, right? Because the not weird er, but like a weird start of the season, and then it just starts after January, or whatever it was, and they played 50 games. We don't look at LeBron's first title in Miami, right? In the 2011 lockout, and the game's not starting till Christmas that year. And the way that, you know, training didn't happen and all those guys played in all these pro-ams and you had Durant at Rucker Park and stuff like that in the offseason because there was no way to practice. 
because of the work stoppage. I mean, there we don't look at those and give it asterisks either. And so I don't think that the number of games being played or the the shortened regular season leads to it necessarily needing an asterisk. Um, I I also have to disagree in the idea that it would wouldn't shape how it's remembered uh, positively or negatively. Um, it will 100% be used, with or without an asterisk it might be, but definitely if there is an asterisk, it would definitely be used against a guy like LeBron and chasing a Michael Jordan or a Kobe Bryant. But you can't it say would... in one vein that it didn't impact LeBron's first championship with Miami, that he played in a strike-shortened season, and then in this vein say that it will. Like, it either does or it doesn't, right? I'm not saying it. I'm not saying it makes him any less of a champion. I'm saying if you... Don't put an asterisk on every shortened season, but you put one on this one because it's like shortened at the end instead of the beginning. Then you will have people using that against him. I'm saying I don't think it needs an asterisk because I don't want to use it against him, Shaka. I think that that's not fair to him. I think this is a very difficult time to win a title. Uh, and I would argue that the 2011-12 season was a very difficult title to win because of how many games we were playing in a week trying to fit 66 games into the second half of the year. I, like, I don't think that it's fair to asterisk this season either, and I said that I wouldn't have asterisked 2011-12, and they didn't, right? Um, we also didn't asterisk when they changed things about the playoffs. Like when they when they shifted from the idea of having divisions going one, two, three, and so like you could come in first in a really crappy division but still get the third overall seed in the playoffs and home court in the first round. They, when we scrapped that, we didn't asterisk things. When we went from the NBA Finals, you could argue the 06 Finals and Dirk's loss in the Finals was shaped a lot by the way the games were played. Right? You went 2-3-2, two, two, and Miami got three straight home games. Um, you could argue that that changed the shape of that Finals and at least that one title. And we didn't put asterisks on them when they started going back to the 2-2-1-1 two, two, one, one, one for the uh, NBA Finals series. Yeah, but um, everyone knew those rules going in. Like, this is... We're talking about playing tournaments for the back end of the playoffs. We're talking about Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and Yusuf Nurkic and John Wall playing. Like, this is not – this isn't that. So did we asterisk last season when Kevin Durant and Yusuf Nurkic got hurt? Like, like we didn't do it when they got hurt. Yeah, and if they got hurt in April and then we stopped everything in April and then restarted the season in July and all of a sudden those guys are playing again, you don't think that that's – reasonable for everyone to know like historically in terms of context and perspective to know oh look the nets are a seven seed but they won the championship like it's not important well, to understand the context behind no one's that. no one's sitting here and asterisking or putting extra context around Kawhi's title in toronto because i don't think that they won a very close six game series without clay for the last game without durant for all but a quarter and a half of the nothing game. I mean, changed like, in terms of the schedule from the start of that season in october until the end of that season in june like what you're saying is that it's only about the injury and what i'm saying is it's not just about the injury because if it was just about injury what we would say is those guys can't come back because they wouldn't have come back in april this is about schedule and injury so all of that context I think there needs to be something that's put into the record book so that when folks look at this 100 years from now, they understand that this was a very so, different season. I also that think t- that that should be in there for 99 and for any strike-shortened season, frankly, because why oh, are we afraid you- to ask the question? Like, Why are we afraid to talk about the context around these shortened seasons? All of these seasons are different. And so let's talk about why those seasons are different. But you ha- but you haven't done it yet. So if you're not if you haven't gone back and done it to every shortened season, it doesn't seem right to do it to this one to me. And that goes to my last point if I'm working backwards on the point you made about the idea of the asterisk helps people remember for a long time from now. I would argue a big difference between like this season and the NBA specifically as opposed to hockey or baseball or anything else and the way it's been interacting with this pandemic is that the NBA was very directly tied to what felt like the entire shutdown of the country. This is inexplicably going to always be tied to the NBA because it was like once that that was on national television as Wednesday night NBA shows are now just sitting here dudes talking about games that are not happening and the Rudy Gobert clips going viral about him making the mockery of touching the microphones and those. This is always going to be tied to the NBA in a way unlike previous Spanish flu pandemic 102 years ago if you're trying to go into history teacher on side of things or the way that tied to probably more appropriately the baseball season in 1918 right um if you're trying to look at how it played into those things or how you look at you know the way the world wars played into the baseball seasons as well um this 
current pandemic is tied to the NBA season in a very different and unique way because of the way that the visual shutdown of basketball seemed to coincide with, oh crap, the entire country's got to shut down right now, right? Um, I, I don't think that that's going to be lost. I think you'll be more likely to read about that NBA night in history textbooks than need the reminder in the NBA books. Okay, belly up sports fam. We are going to do an essay question for our final segment. And with this essay question, Mr. Ainsworth and I are going to address what topics need the 30 for 30 documentary style treatment that ESPN tends to give to big sports issues. And we are actually going to break it down into three different categories. We're going to start with kind of the short form documentary, which is the traditional 30 for 30, like an hour long episode, maybe a couple of hours, because it seems like even the single episodes now are going two hours. But originally the uh, 30 for 30s were literally designed to be 30 minutes. So like thinking a shorter form documentary, then a medium length documentary, thinking about a two parter. So for instance, what's happening with Lance Armstrong and the documentary that they're doing currently where it's two, two hour episodes. So we're thinking that's kind of medium length. And then we're thinking long form documentary, OJ Made in America, The Last Dance, multiple episodes, multiple weeks. So we're going to pick three topics and we're going to say that they should be short form, medium or long form. So Mr. Ainsworth, how about you get us started? If you were going to do a 30 for 30, something that was an hour long, maybe two hours at the most, what topic do you think needs to be covered? So I think short form documentary, I think like a topic you could probably do the entire story in that hour to hour and a half range. My first one is a short one that I'm thinking of would be about Hakeem Olajuwon and becoming more devout in his Muslim faith. It probably serves no one as a surprise that I want a more insight on Hakeem Olajuwon and Olajuwon documentary. I'm sitting here with his jersey very <laughs> literally hanging next to me in my room. Um, I remember but, your Olajuwon socks. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm a big fan of his for a lot of reasons, but I think it's interesting to point out that in the Ralph Sampson Twin Tower Lajuan days, he, for lack of a better phrase, is a really feisty guy. I mean, there's the famous clip of him slapping or punching, depending on what you want to define his hand as open or closed, with Billy Paltz in the face. Um, he was angry a lot of the time. He was, he was aggressive. He was, and, and I don't mean that to say, like, you know, every big man's angry, but, like, he really was this, like, aggressive player that just so happened to have good footwork. And then in 1991 coincidentally the year I'm born so maybe that's the reason I want to see this done but he becomes a much more openly and devout Muslim he he looks into you know making the Mecca and making the trip over and he comes back and he's like oh my gosh and he, he's praying much more throughout the day and he studies the Quran every day at home he goes to the mosque and then a couple years later in 94 95 he's winning titles um, and Drexler would comment later during the 95 title run that his religion dominates his life. Like it's the thing he spends more of his time in than basketball. And, and I don't think that the, like he remember he played in the finals observing Ramadan. I mean, this is a very religious man. And, and I, dominated I, that final. Thank you because I'm a Knicks final. fan and I totally remember it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I guess my thought is that something happens in 91, right? Um, he changed his name from Akim to Hakim, and, and I think that's really him saying he just wants it to be correctly pronounced, right? Um, but it, it coincides with this whole shift in the guy, and, and I, I don't know what the creative tie would be something about the H, both being Houston and him adding the H to his name, but I, I think there's something there that could be really cool for an hour and a half. I want the wrap-up of the Jordan story, and that's what, one that I think could be done in oh, a yeah. shorter form because they did Jordan rides the bus. So we got the piece about him doing minor league baseball. We got the last dance. So we got his whole career from college through game six versus Utah. What we don't get is the rest. And maybe that's the one that Jordan doesn't want to be as involved in <laughs> because there's a little less success there, but I'm interested in Jordan's mindset because if you go back and you look at the Washington Wizards when he's involved with the ownership group in the front office, that's not this happy-go-lucky story of him coming back, if folks remember the detail. Like, he was uh, the person who went and made the uh, number one pick of Kwame Brown. Like, that was his pick. Kwame Brown 
was I, I, as big a bust in the NBA as one could be, having been the number one overall pick. Jordan and the Wizards are not drawing in terms of people coming to the arena. And I believe that it was his ownership group that convinced him to come out of retirement in order to bring fans into the seats. And he comes out, he plays two years. He actually plays pretty darn well. I mean, he's averaging still 25 points a game, and it's obviously a shell of what he once was. Like, I'm curious about that part of that decision and why he ended up doing that. I'm also curious about what he does even after he retires for the third and final time, which is he breaks away from the Washington ownership group. It looked like he was going to get control of the Wizards, and he ends up actually buying the, uh, at the time, Charlotte Bobcats and makes them the Charlotte Hornets. Like, I'm curious about that kind of wrapping up of his career. I mean, I wouldn't even mind hearing the personal pieces because I know that that's the time when he gets divorced. His sons actually get involved in college basketball. So, like, there's a lot of pieces that I think could be interesting. And so I'd like to kind of wrap up the Jordan story. So now we're talking about maybe a two-parter, two-hour episodes. What would you want to see covered in your medium form documentary? So I would I would look at uh, something that easily gets split into two episodes. And it's funny, we, we keep, tend to keep going back to basketball stories. I think it's because we have a lot of access to basketball guys. And so I think it's easy for us to think about them, you know, the human side of and the humanitarian stories about them. I remember being 13 years old and watching this team play and being like, oh my God, what is going on here? What is happening? The 2004 Olympic team, the uh, USA basketball, is constantly like discredited as the worst team ever. And there's all kinds of stories surrounding potential infighting and Iverson's leadership versus Duncan's quietness and this, that, and the other. But between 04 and 08, you've got that 04 awful Olympic representation experience that lose to a guy named Manu Ginobili, who's pretty good at basketball, but they get they get hooked <laughs> on for it. And then you in 08 have, you know, if they're not better than the dream team, then the second best, the 08 redeem team is the best or second best, depending on who you want to ask, basketball team ever assembled, right? And I would start the documentary leading up to the 04 team. And like kind of start in 0203 and kind of how guys get on that team, how you have a super young LeBron, a super young Carmelo, and they're very clearly starstruck. And you even have guys talking now about like Carmelo came out the other day and was like, we were sitting on the bench wondering why we weren't playing more. Because at that point in their lives, Carmelo and LeBron had never not played every minute of a basketball game, right? <laughs> um, and so you have those guys on the team, and then they actually stay involved in the team. And then in 08, you have the Redeem team, and you've got an older LeBron, an older Carmelo, an older Wade, but you also have Kobe Bryant, and you also have this resurgence and importance that starts at the Colangelo time, and the USA basketball becomes a much more important and visible thing. Well, it wasn't that folks didn't think we were sending our best in 2004 either. We just, they weren't a team. So it's like even the difference right. between the structure of, if you're going to do this, you're all in for a couple of years, and the difference between Larry Brown being the head coach in 2004 versus Coach K being the coach in 2008, there's a lot of interesting pieces there. I think that that's a great story to tell. And you're right, there's a definitive cutoff. Like part one is 2004, and part two is 2008, and I think that that's awesome. Um, my My medium form documentary is non-basketball related. It's about one of the guys who I think is the most interesting person in sports. I want Nick Saban. I want to understand his time in the NFL. I want the deep dive in his time in Michigan State. I want to know what made him leave Michigan State to go to LSU because when he did that, that was not a time where everyone just kind of recognized that the SEC was this dominant force in football. Right. So he makes a jump that a lot of people said was lateral. Like, why are you leaving Michigan State to go to Louisiana State? Like, that didn't seem to make a lot of sense to folks. Then all of a sudden he wins a national championship there. I want to know about his flirtation back with the NFL when he coaches the Miami Dolphins, the things that he learned and what he's taken from that to now go and build the dynasty that is Alabama football. And like to win that championship, that national championship at LSU which I don't think that everyone understood how big SEC football was at that time. Like, I just want that beginning portion of the story, and then I want to know how it leads to Miami. But I want the failed pieces in Miami as well, because I think that it's that failing in Miami 
that really leads <laughs> to his greatness at yeah. Alabama. He had to have those negative experiences in Miami to be as great as he is in Alabama to say, you know what, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it my way, and this is how it's going to be done, and I know this can work because I got a national championship ring, so I know this can work here in this environment, in this I, area of the country. I will say, I want that documentary to cut off right before Colt McCoy gets hurt in the title game. <laughs> um, I actually I agree, though. I think that it, you know people forget about Nick Saban before he was successful, and he – Certainly had a interesting career before then. I actually, you know, I, I, I know Tony Banks really well. He's here in Dallas, and uh, and Tony Tony's doing pretty well. And Tony always talks about people forget he played for Saban at Michigan State, right? And and like no, no one forgets who Tony Banks is here in town, but everyone forgets like he didn't just play for the you know multiple NFL teams, and he wasn't just on the roster and the for the Ravens when they won it all in two thousand. Those like. They forget that. Oh yeah, you were also at Michigan State when Saban was. Like that. Even today, people forget that when they're addressing him and talking about you know people he knows through football. Um, I also think it's funny to think about like how much different this story would have been had Drew Brees in Miami worked out and he actually gone there when he was hurt. Right. It's but, a whole different documentary, my friend. <laughs> right. He might have had, but he might have just had a bunch of Super Bowls and instead of a bunch of you know college championships. Who knows? What's your long form documentary? This is something I've thought about, and it's tying a couple of stories together loosely in a town that gets talked about a lot in documentary when you talk about crazy places in America. And it's a town that most people cannot find on a map, and I've driven through probably 100 to 150 times. Um, I look at Waco, Texas, and I want to look at this decade in Waco from about 02 from to about 2012-13. And I want to look at Baylor University and the Patrick Dennehy scandals in murder in 2003. And like, all of a sudden, this is this giant black mark on Baylor University. And then it's the Robert Griffin area. And then it's Brittany Griner. And then it's like Baylor's back. And then you have the giant sexual assault scandals in Waco in 2012, 13, 14, and it falls apart again. And I think, that, I don't know how you tie them together outside of the fact that they all play for the same logo or same university or whatever, but Waco's a weird place, man. And I think that there's something there. And I think that there's, it's interesting that all of that happened, of course, on top of all the other historical craziness that is Waco, at Baylor, this Baptist religious university. Like for those of you that haven't seen Baylor or Waco, the tops of all the academic buildings are covered in gold because it, it's like supposed to be like this holiness of, over the campus. Like it's a very interesting, weird place. It's also Chip and Joanna and the Target brand that they have. Going. Like <laughs> Waco's just its own weird thing. But I think that there's something in that weird, in that decade of like the fall and rise and fall again. And none of it is like small potatoes. It's like murder, big time fall. It's like Heisman Trophy. WNBA number one overpick, big time rise. Then it's like sexual assault scandal, entire school's fired, big, big fall. Like everything, right, is big time there. And I think that there's a story to be told that I don't know how to link it together, but someone that's better at this than I am can. Well, I think that it's linked together just by the location. And I want to go all the way back to 1993. Like, you got to go all the way back to the weirdness that is. I mean, you got to go all the way back to the weirdness that is Waco. You have to talk about. The uh, siege at Waco. And I think that there's been a documentary that's kind of been done about that. But, yeah. I mean, you got to go all the way back there. And then, yeah, you come all the way through. And, I mean, you could even wrap it up with the successes that they've had. I mean, Kim Mulkey is obviously goes into the Hall of Fame this year in terms of a coach. I mean, if there's ever a uh, basketball family that kind of feels – um, maybe elevated, like I don't. I want to say holier than thou because that has a right. negative connotation. But the <laughs> Drew family kind of yeah. has this exalted nature about them, and now that's who you've got running that basketball program. That program has been incredibly successful. I mean, they were going into this NCAA tournament as the number one overall seed in all likelihood, and who knows how that could have ended. They're in a BCS talk, bowl game as well with Matt say, Rule. If you talk about football, Matt Rule. I mean, if, if you look at it as a twenty-five year documentary, they. They probably should have had the football program taken away and some sort of death penalty thing. It didn't, and Matt Rule comes in, and they're actually they're actually back to being. I mean, Matt Rule's now in the NFL, obviously, but like he kind of flipped it around pretty quick. Like, like I, I just I think it's an interesting university to look at. I want Mike Tyson in ten parts 
because his career <laughs> and his life is incredible. Guys, understand, I grew up in uh, – I was born in Brooklyn. So I grew up and remember hearing stories about uh, guys like Mike Tyson who would literally rob old women. Like, they would literally knock them out and take their stuff. Like, this was a reality. And so to know that this is how Tyson grows up and then to end up with Customato and actually learning how to channel – that rage and anger to a point where he could get into the ring as a 16, 17 year old and he's knocking out grown men. And then he goes, turns pro and he's a killer and guys can't last more than five minutes in the ring with him. And to see him reach the heights of being the youngest heavyweight champion of the world ever and be incredibly successful and then see the fall as well, right? Whether it's Buster Douglas and that upset, whether it's the rape conviction where he ends up in jail, and his life takes so many twists and turns. He converts to Islam. He comes back and has some semblance of success. He wins the world championship again. Uh, and then he's got the Evander Holyfield ear-biting stuff. He's got the Lennox Lewis, I want to eat your children. Then Lennox Lewis eats his cookies in the ring and beats him from pillar to post. Then he retires, and... Mike Tyson in retirement has had this whole second life where he's in the hangover movies and he's he, people see him as uh, as a as a lovable character. Like Mike Tyson is considered a lovable character. Mike Tyson would have killed you in 1986, but now he's considered a lovable character who people can really resonate with and talking about like he's like invested in marijuana farms and those sorts of things like his life is kind of crazy and now you see him at 52 years old and you see these clips of him and he still looks like he can maybe handle you if you really want to go he's 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 fascinating and people are drawn to him and drawn to his story and i want that story in 10 parts i also think that having a voice that mike tyson has and the tiger from the hangover being connected i think that makes him very much a lovable character in a lot of ways <laughs> like people forget when they hear that voice 30 years later while he's like very you know much in love with his pet tiger that oh wait a second that's the same voice that was attached to those hands 15 years ago <laughs> like, i think they just don't don't connect him that'd be a crazy and it also would fall in line with the idea of like the 10-part jordan doc he is one of the greatest athletes in a long time, if not ever, right? Like he's might put Ali ahead of him, but like he's one of the best athletes of a generation, if not multiple. And so it would be kind of the same in that sense, I would think. It's the Michael Jordan kind of Shaquille O'Neal argument. I don't think anyone thinks that Shaquille O'Neal is greater than Michael Jordan much that I don't think that anyone right. thinks that Mike Tyson is greater than Ali. Right. And if I asked you who's the most dominant, you might say Shaq was the most dominant basketball player, like even more dominant than Michael Jordan. And you might say that Mike Tyson was more dominant in terms of being a heavyweight than Muhammad Ali. Friends, that is another episode of FN Sports. Hopefully with all of the things that are going on in the world, our podcast was a little distraction for you. Um, I know that Parker and I definitely enjoyed having a little bit of conversation that wasn't as heavy as some of the uh, conversations that we're having with our peers outside of F and sports. That being said, uh, Parker, you want to hit <laughs> folks with your socials? Yeah. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at P Ainsworth 512. That's P A I N S W O R T H 512. Painsworth 512 on Instagram and Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter these days. Obviously we're all teachers in summer during COVID, not leaving our apartments to do a whole lot. Um, you know, the world's crazy and if you need some escapism of sorts, um, not that, you know, sports is exactly an escape when no games are happening, but uh, <laughs> I'm happy to debate things, I guess we'll say. Or if you want to talk real world stuff, I guess we can too. But find me on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I also respond to the uh, podcast, Instagram, uh, Twitter. The podcast Twitter is FN Sports, F-I-N-S-P-O-R-T-S-2, uh, the number two. Uh, all one word on Twitter. I usually dash PA to let people know who I am and Shaka will dash CC to let you know when it's him. Absolutely. We also have the podcast Instagram at F underscore in underscore sports. 
My socials are at Shaka Cummings. That's my Twitter and my Instagram at C-H-A-K-A-C-U-M-M-I-N-G-S. Please feel free to interact, like, subscribe, share, do all those wonderful things to help out our podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode this week. And please remember, when it comes to sports, don't flunk with us. Later, guys. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team Ready. Ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is, so they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash team ready.